Hi, I'm Jamie Brazil. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Chris Harberman, CEO of Reality Mine. Founded in 2012, Reality Mine is a passive metering technology enabling the tracking of consumers on multiple devices across all major platforms, providing a holistic view of their daily lives. Reality Mine is headquartered in Manchester, England, with offices in London and Sydney. Prior to joining Reality Mine, Chris was the CEO of Rated People and the co-founder and CEO of Research Now. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast. My pleasure, Jamin. Great to be here. So I'd like to start out with a little bit of context, as usual. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about your parents and how they inform what you do today. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, without wishing to disrespect my parents, uh, just to give you an idea, my uh, mum was a housewife and my uh, stepdad was a university professor. And in fact, I, I don't think I do take much inspiration career-wise from, from what they did. If anything, I think my inspiration comes from my grandfather, who was a self-made entrepreneur. The only boss he ever had, he says, was the, what he used to say, was the RAF during the Second World War. And uh, I think that that seeded somewhere in me an entrepreneurial gene that led to me co-founding Research Now and other, and other things in the world of market research. Did you spend a lot of time with your grandfather? Uh, yes, I did. I actually left left my parents' home on my 15th birthday at the time we were living in Canada. And I moved across the Atlantic back to where I was born in England and I lived with my grandparents. So my sort of formative teenage years or late teenage years were living with my grandparents. That's super interesting because I have a similar story. It's not about me, sorry, but just like I'm from a connection perspective. I did a similar thing where I moved out of my parents in my mid-teens and in with my grandparents. Uh, and my grandfather was instrumental in my life in a very similar way as a entrepreneur. And he had his hands in lots of different things from, you know, garden farming to farmer market type things to dairies, importing and exporting and, and whatnot. And so it's very, I think that the entrepreneurial gene for me really came from his mentorship. And yeah, so was he part of or around when you started Research Now? Uh, yes, he was. I mean, he's he's dead now because we get, we started research now. Myself and Andrew Cooper way back in two thousand, actually, um, or two thousand and three, when we rebranded as Research Now, and and he was alive for about another seven or eight years after that. So he saw the early struggle, <laughs> which I think all entrepreneurs go through. But also, I'm I'm very pleased to you know be conscious that he also saw the early successes and when we you know floated on the London Stock Exchange and so on. He was alive for all that and. I think very proud that, that I'd managed to get a business off the ground with my co-founder. Yeah, what a great opportunity for him to be able to see that, you know, the initial birthing of the company and then later on the success of the company. Um, and of course, ultimately selling research now to eRewards and, and then eRewards rebranding, which has actually surprised me as research now, which in you know, many cases you'll have the, that's kind of like the tail wagging the dog, right? From a <laughs> yeah. size perspective. I've always wondered why did they rebrand around research now? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question because as you say that the transaction that happened in 2009 was that eRewards, a US private company and, and leader in the online panel space in the US bought research now, which was a London uh, headquartered global business, which I'd started with Andrew Cooper. Um, and I think the Research Now name, the, the, it was actually the US team at eRewards felt that it was just a better name. You know, our, our core client base was market research agencies. And they thought Research Now as a name just spoke very clearly to our core client constituency about what we were about. You know, one of the things we were about, of course, was the speed of, of online data collection. And the interesting thing about that is, from my vantage point, is 
um, you know, e-rewards came out of actually the creating a reward system for uh, like airlines and other large companies and a mechanism by chance that they could provide rewards to their members was through participating in, in surveys. E-Rewards also was very successful at building the premier B2B platform. So if you wanted to do research among business professionals, E-Rewards had those relationships with, you know, like I said, large airlines or, or with business travelers mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Well, yeah. And they opened up that base. The relevancy of the name Research Now, I think it's probably still the best name in Consumer Insights. For the reason that you just said is that there's always pressure around time and there's always pressure around efficiency. Yeah, absolutely. I remember coming up with a name. I was sitting with Andrew and we, we were thinking what, because we'd started a business called the Mobile Channel, which interestingly was a kind of permission-based mobile advertising proposition. So both eRewards and Research Now started about the same time as permission-based, reward-based advertising businesses. And then when those models struggled, both companies pivoted, as we now fashionably say, in what you do when you're nearly bust, <laughs> into saying, well, rather than having an advertising audience that we incentivize to watch advertising or receive mobile advertising, we'll incentivize these people to do market research surveys as the world transitioned to online. And we were sitting down talking about, you know, what we could rebrand this company from the mobile channel. And we came up with Research Now because, it, you know, there were three of us at that time. And we thought, well, sounds like it could be a big company. You know, by the time I left, we were 1,200 people. But we were three at that point. And we said, research, you know, online, it's going to be cheaper. It's going to be better, arguably, but it's certainly going to be faster. So research now. Why wouldn't you want your research now rather than in three weeks? It's perfect. I mean, like, it's such a perfect name. I'm always about, like, the simple connections, right? So that's, if you can embed that innately inside of a name, from my vantage point, it certainly is a nice hack to create immediate connection with the value prop. After leaving, I guess, E-reward slash research now, you then started rated people. And then, of course, now you've got reality mine, as in gold mm. mine. What do you think your grandfather would say in looking at your current path? That's interesting. I mean, I think his main interest would be in probably around me personally, whether I was enjoying it and what my motivations were, which I think is key. You know, when you've You've done something, I, you know, I, I moved to Ready People to do something completely different. You know, I left the world of market research for several years and I was involved in, in Ready People, which is an online platform to effectively find tradespeople. In, in the US, you have you know, Angie's List, Home Advisor. It's a similar business in, in the UK. I think it would have been, you know, just like him, actually. You sort of, you do one thing. It's interesting for a while. Maybe you have some success. Maybe you have less success. But you, your brain sort of spurs you on, your curiosity to do something different. And that's what I did. When I joined, uh, I didn't actually found Radio People, but I, I became the sort of professional CEO, as it were. And similarly, that's exactly what's happened with Reality Mine. I found myself back in the research industry. So my grandfather was just the same. He went from one thing to another and, you know, very, very different. He was, he opened a hotel and he ran a, a, a cafe. He, he did all sorts of things like that. Nothing to do with, with data or market research, but a similar, similar journey of, of different things. What is your motivation? I have to believe having, you know, gone through acquisitions and also on both sides, you probably, and I don't mean to assert this, but you probably did okay financially, meaning that, you know, achieving a certain number and then allowing you to live fairly comfortably off of that. And CEO jobs, they're remarkably stressful. I think everyone would agree in different seasons, of course also fun and rewarding and all that kind of thing. What have you identified as that motivator to continue? 
Yeah, it's, it's funny, the CEO job. I mean, I, I think, as you just said, it at times it feels like the worst job in the building. <laughs> but I think most of the time it's actually the best job in the building because you, you have a, I think, surprisingly, as much as anyone has control. And, and I think that's a very strange thing to say in this kind of COVID-19 world we're now in. But you have relative to a lot of people in, in a company or in a workplace, you have a lot of control. You have a lot of understanding over the context. And I think that for me has always made me feel that as a CEO, it feels less stressful than jobs I had earlier in my career where I was a kind of small cog in a corporate machine. Right. Yeah, that's good. And I appreciate the sort of self-awareness of, you know, what fits and, and what doesn't. The interesting thing to me, though, around this is that it feels like there must be some high level of joy that warrants the ongoing effort because it is still a, you know, it's a it's different than an eight to five, right? It's almost like yeah. a 24 hour. <laughs> yeah. Especially, right. Yeah. In driving that, have you figured out like where that joy actually comes from? I think it's the same thing that made me highly competitive, sometimes overly competitive player of games when I was a kid, whether that's a family game of Scrabble or a computer game or, you know, I'm, I like to compete. I like to win. And I, that sounds quite brutal. But I think some of this is purely I get a lot of pleasure from seeking success and also the journey being challenging. And so, yes, we were very successful at, at Research Now and we had a fantastic team and that was a great journey. I took a, a little bit of time off, but then I wanted to sort of re-enter that challenge. And actually the fact that, you know, my last job was completely unrelated sector is, is kind of neither here nor there. It's, uh, it's just like playing a different game, but you kind of play to win. And that certainly motivates me. So Reality Mine, give us a little bit of understanding. What, what is Reality Mine's value prop and, and who is it delivering it to? Yeah. So Reality Mine is a, a software provider. And we're firmly, fairly and squarely in the market research industry. And I should, I should come back to sort of why that is. I wasn't a, a founder of the business. There were two co-founders and I came along later as a, as, a, as a CEO to sort of take the business on to the next growth phase. And what, what we do is we deploy our software onto typically mobile, but also tablet and laptop devices of market research panelists. And we capture very rich behavioral data. So this is a world of still a world like research now of incentivized panels but Reality Mind software can capture information about the content people are watching. So they might be streaming Netflix on a tablet, and you know, we can see that. They might be going on a purchase journey in Amazon or Walmart.com. We can see that. We can see in the in-app behavior. So we're capturing very, very granular behavioral data, which is, a, I would say, a massive complement to a lot of the other things going on in the world of market research. You know, there's a, as we know, there's a rich world which has existed for decades of market researchers measuring stuff. Put simply, what media people are consuming, what people are buying mostly. And there's a very rich world of understanding, you know, what people are thinking based on large on survey research and so on. And this passive behavioral data is, is highly complementary to that. But of course, the emergence of the smartphone roughly a decade ago and the huge impact that's had on, on our lives as consumers is kind of key and pivotal to why this is so important. The marriage of primary and secondary research is a theme that I had identified in 2019, and it was one of two of the like most material. Whenever I'd have a guest from a brand on, which is about 50% of the time, the guests would across the board say that one of their biggest challenges is being able to connect consumer behavior data to or transactional data or what have you 
uh, third-party data to their primary research in a way that provides richer context of the insight, then in that richer context, obviously leverages pulled with a compelling story, then can be leveraged in the organization for action, right? So it really is seen as this like piece that used to be a nice to have, but is now a requirement for researchers to present and one understand and then ultimately present the right sort of uh, recommendations from their from their research. I'm really curious on who your buyer is inside of this inside of this new world at the brand level, or is it actually at the agency level? No, it's it's at the agency level. A lot of the a lot of the clever stuff that integration of and I think that's a, a theme of today's insight world is you know a fragmentation of techniques and a need to integrate different techniques, different types of data to get to the fast insight. That clever stuff is done by our clients. So we're providing software which sits on panels and we don't own the panels. Um, and what the software does is it captures this rich behavioral data, but our, our client is the market researcher, typically in, in a large market research agency. So a lot of our clients are the big global MR players, the household names, um, like Ipsos and so on. Um, but also we work for lots of innovative, smaller agencies. And, and the big use cases are around measurement, particularly of video, I'm not sure what the latest statistic is, but if you think about you know, people watching video in Asia, for example, the majority of that viewing is happening on mobile phones. It's not happening on, on TV. So the world of measurement, if you think through the lens of TV ratings, you're missing the picture in terms of what's happening with video. And even here in, in Western markets, particularly if you look at younger demographics, if I think about my 18-year-old son, he doesn't watch a lot of television. He watches a lot of YouTube. He watches a lot of Netflix. And that's mostly on his phone or his laptop. And I think that explosion of change in behavior is, is causing a need for measurement. So, you know, researchers who are into the world of measuring media need tools like RealityMind. Similarly, you have researchers who are thinking about journeys towards purchasing. And of course, we now live in this omnichannel world. I think, well, we used to live in this omnichannel world until the COVID-19 outbreak. Now we live in a surprisingly digital world. But let's assume we go back to some semblance of normality. Consumers clearly have this massive uh, array of choices and influences um, in terms of how they end up buying product XYZ in a certain category, in a certain location or digital space. Um, and our technology helps complement the offline world knowledge with the, the digital journeys that people are making um, on their devices and, and, of course, across devices. How accessible, if I'm like a, a boutique research agency how accessible is your tool because it sounds like it's doing a lot which for me into it's it's super expensive and it might be and that's okay is it something that you know smaller agencies are able to leverage no absolutely we have some very small agencies doing uh qualitative projects so um you know they might you typically think of that in the old days as you know focus groups and so on but we have agencies like flamingo who are using our our tool and they may be deploying an app which we provide to a small group of people, maybe 50 people within a category, I don't know, sports shoe buyers or whatever it might be. And they're using that rich data to draw a picture of the lives of these sports shoe users. Maybe these are running enthusiasts or whatever. I think what is what is different is the kind of data the technology provides. So yes, there's a question of how do you get the data? You know, how do you um, engage a panel? What about all the privacy issues? We could talk about that. But I think back to your question, a really interesting question is, can that agency handle the type of data that metering technology outputs? You know, researchers are used to dealing with you know, typically survey data. You know, that's a well-known and loved and understood thing after decades and decades and decades of survey research long before online. Um, the kind of data we're, our technology provides 
is you know millions of rows of individual events. You know, so from this timestamp to that timestamp, this person with this ID using this device did X Y Z. You know they viewed Netflix for fourteen minutes or whatever it might be, and and you've got to have a, a certain capability to manipulate huge amounts of data and integrate it with other types of data to bring it to life. So. You know, it very much depends upon the skills of the agency client that we're working with and their ability to to handle that type of data is, is really what drives the answer to your question. So how so you provide the you give them the actual data. Are you also providing the analytics tools? Or are they leveraging some combination of R or Python or something like that? Yeah, no, it's that mostly happens client side. We deploy our technology can be deployed onto a panel either as a, an app or as an SDK. So in a perfect world, for example, a client has, they have their own panel, they have a native mobile app within the panel, it might be a native survey app. If you think of panels like you know M4 in the US, huge US panel, but it's all native mobile, so it's all Android and iOS. In the M4 world, our technology is deployed as an SDK, and you know that data arrives you know, at M4, millions and millions in rows. But the analytics, we have done some work with some clients around, for example, dashboarding. We have developed some tools that allow the data sets to be queried and actually to return in the format of survey data as if you'd surveyed someone to, to capture their behavior, as if they were self-reporting on their behavior. But for the most part, it's agencies that do the heavy lifting in terms of analytics. Got it. That makes perfect perfect sense. Thank you. You touched on COVID-19. Obviously, probably the biggest single biggest event that we'll ever you and I will encounter in our lifetime at a global level. How do you think coming out of this, do you have any predictions on how we will be different? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I, I think there's been a lot of comment in the media about, you know, things will never be the same again. And assertions that, for example, markets like business travel might, might never really go back, that people will get used to these endless Zoom meetings and decide they like it and, and so on. I think a lot, to, and, and I think some of that's overblown. I think a lot of things that people like doing for all sorts of reasons they'll return to doing what they like doing, whether that relates to their work patterns or their, their personal patterns. But I think a lot depends on the lockdown and how long the world remains in a lockdown or semi-lockdown state. We have to learn new habits. Clearly, there are, there are some things which will have ratcheted. So, for example, I think there are some people who are still maybe reticent to do online shopping in certain categories. You know, maybe if you're doing a we, we call it, I don't know if you call it DIY in the US, but a DIY project around the home. Maybe you've used your time in the garden to, I don't know, buy some materials and you used to go to your local DIY store, your hardware store and buy stuff. You can't do that right now. It turns out you can do it very easily online. It gets delivered. And hey, why, did I, why didn't I do that before? And I think there will be some categories, maybe food, similar grocery retail, where we, have, we will see a systematic step change in the move towards online and, uh, and digital. But I, but I think I don't know. Maybe I'm a luddite, but I think a lot of a lot of us will return to old familiar patterns if we're able to. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how it materializes. I, you know, I'm very split aspirationally on what I want and what I think is going to end up happening. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. But I tend to agree with you that you know the the activity levels and you know the things that we used to do, travel, etc. That's certainly not. Uh, long term, one should thing, go back to normal. One thing you said, Jamin, that was interesting was this is the biggest event this COVID nineteen in a lifetime, and I think that's almost certainly true. I mean, we don't know, but <laughs> almost certainly true from a sort of short, almost tactical perspective. Arguably, there's a bigger thing happening, but it's it's the frog being slowly boiled in the pot, which is climate change. 
And I think there's an interesting question of will we see intersections between those things? So if you think about airline travel, for example, it could be because of the financial impact of COVID-19 and the impact on capacity in the industry and the impact on things like distancing within planes that we may see and people's reticence to travel. You know, I think we may see systematic change in the airline industry you know, related to less flying, less people on aircraft, uh, higher priced flying. I think that actually could be here to stay. And it will actually, you know, the, the environmental pressures that were there will only be released to, to accelerate, I think. That's on point. You, know, you and I have gone through for the last, us as a community, have gone through this crazy, like, everybody flies period. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, airlines have just been leveraging the heck out of that, right? With seat space getting smaller and smaller, sure. ridiculously small. Yeah. And I'm not even a tall guy and it's small, right? So, yeah. and, and now, now the opposite. It's <laughs> plenty of leg room, <laughs> I have to yeah. believe. You can reach out right. both sides and can't touch anyone. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. So in this kind of like, Coming out of it, I think there there should be a definitely more appreciation of the customer from the airline perspective. But then, as you're articulating this, you know, the pollution and greenhouse gases emissions, you know, they've fallen. It's well documented. You have these like emotional things with dolphins mm-hmm. back in right. So, you know, all of this is creating this like beautiful natural. I mean, just like in my life, the skies are clearer right now where I live. Yeah than they have been in decades. Yeah. And it's amazing. It's mar- It's a marvelous thing. I can see the Sierras, which normally I can't see from my house. And it's just like, they're like part of my backyard Beautiful. landscaping. It's Beautiful. right. Exactly. It's just like, so such a unique time. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's an interesting, interesting assessment that you're making. And I, and my, obviously our hopes are aligned that that that's something that gets a lot of attention, mm. more attention going forward. Mm. So thinking about actually the market research space in a post-COVID environment, because at some point this has to has to blow over, how will the market research space be different over the next few years? Yeah, it's interesting. It's always tempting to think that, you know, that everything's changing and it's happening so fast. And I think you've got to step back and think, well, what are the fundamentals that probably remain the same and remain the same over many decades? And I think some of those things, you know, needing to follow the consumer to deliver insight, if we think of that as the kind of part of the purpose of the market research industry i guess that doesn't change but the question is but how how do you do that i think we see we see trends you know and, and so for example the existence of reality miners as, as a player in the industry is simply because a decade ago the smartphone came along and suddenly there was this this tool which was radically changing consumer behavior and if i if i can just go off on a tangent I and mean, i think i think everyone knows this but you know I, a couple of years ago i went to my first tinder wedding um, where the, the couple met on Tinder, they met through their mobile phones. People are managing their lives through their mobile phones in terms of you know their social lives, social media. They're learning, they're educating themselves on these devices. They're reinforcing political opinions through you know the, the social media platforms and so on. They're watching stuff on these devices. They're buying stuff on these devices. So huge consumer change. And so Reality Mind has emerged to help one of many companies, of course, capturing that, helping capture an understanding of that opportunity. And I guess a key thing will be to see, well, what else is the consumer doing? What is changing? Whether that's in terms of how we communicate or whatever we're doing, that will drive some of the change. I also think one of the things going on is that competition on the industry has become more and more intense. If I think back over my career, I can really think of it as the kind of pre-2000, pre-digital, pre-internet career and the kind of post-2000, post-internet career. And I think the digitization of the world has created this sort of massive, you could think of it as a test and learn 
capability for companies. You know, because of digital, everything's measurable. So, you know, one form of getting insight is just do something and see what happens. So I think if you think about your average corporate employee, if they're thinking, where, where do I get my insight from? Their immediate thought is not necessarily, oh, I'll call up a big market research agency and ask for a report in six weeks on topic X, Y, Z. You know, they'll, they'll learn by doing. And I think that, that's a trend. And I think that's driving greater complexity, you know, pre- time pressure on researchers. And that's only going to accelerate. So coming back to your question, how will the, place, the space look in five years' time? What's going to change? I think some of those inexorable pressures around you know, greater and greater scope of issues to cover, fragmentation of, of data collection possibility, the need to weave in different methodologies and, and techniques to drive insight, that's only going to accelerate. And unfortunately, I think it's going to accelerate at the same time as clients want inevitably more for less, because many times they'll see other ways of getting to the insight that they want. A, a broad sweeping generalization, but that, that's sort of how I see it. So you are interacting on a regular basis with leaders in the insight space, agencies specifically. What are the biggest issues or the biggest issue that they are facing today? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think if you think about the largest agencies, there are honorable exceptions that are in growth mode. So, well, if we, if we think of the pre-COVID-19 period, at least. So, you know, Ipsos, for example, is still growing organically. But if you look at the other research majors in general, they're contracting. Um, and I think you've got to step back and ask yourself, well, why is that? What is what is happening at those agencies? And I think we're just living in this period of, of unprecedented change. The age-old you know, media silos that needed to be measured, whether that's TV or print or radio, those silos have broken down. If you think about your, your readership of news, clearly it's not about measuring newspaper readership. Um, you might be finding yourself reading something because... I don't know, Twitter sent you an email, you click through a link, and suddenly you're reading an article on Fortune, and you didn't really think about that until you got the email and clicked through. How can that be measured accurately? Um, That's a difficult problem. So I think the world of measurement is facing a lot of challenges. And similarly, the world of um, trying to understand the consumer is facing facing challenges for all sorts of reasons, from the pace of change of the consumer and the the different ways of reaching that consumer. You know, let's let's not go off on on survey research. So I think that the traditional methods of capturing and analyzing data are under tremendous pressure. So I think the short answer to your question is clients are finding themselves needing to innovate and innovate faster. Yet as ever, you know, when industries face structural change, they sort of cling to things that they know, techniques that they know, are revenue streams that they've had for many, you know, many, many years they're trying to defend. And defending those revenue streams while innovating aggressively is very challenging. Um, so I think a lot of clients in the, in the larger universe of MR agencies see those those issues, and I think that's that's well understood. I think that that also, though, of course, throws up lots of opportunity for smaller, innovative, nimble guys with nothing to lose. So I think a lot of the innovation you're seeing is coming from you know, smaller businesses. I mean, Real Time would be an example of that, but there are many, 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 as we know, within the sector who are who are really coming at it with a, a different angle, a different technique. But it's still going to leave you know massive scope for great market researchers to integrate the best capabilities and the best methodologies and keep their clients happy, which is ultimately the goal of all of us. 
Yeah, I have been actually very impressed with Ipsos as an organization, both before and right now. They've done a remarkable job of differentiating themselves. I don't know exactly what's part of their secret sauce, mm. but it has been exciting to watch that large agency. Because most people would say that, you know, right now is not the time of the large agency, but mm -hmm. they continue to become a remarkable player in the space. I mean, I think I have a view on that. Which is, I think, you know, we know about Ipsos that a lot of the growth historically, a lot of the way that company's been built has been by acquisition. But I think in managing those acquisitions, there's been quite a lot of focus on the, the founder entrepreneurs and accountability locally, whether that's geographically locally or locally within a business unit. And I think at times that may have looked, you know, from afar um, as not necessarily the best strategy compared to maybe a kind of global common product approach, whatever it might be. But actually, when times are being disrupted, if you've got a local person that cares about their business or the line of business that's accountable you know, to the top of the organization, that's potentially very powerful. I think that is one of the things going on at Ipsos. That's super interesting. That's a whole nother topic on the <laughs> podcast, which yeah. would be actually fun, you know, tactics and strategies around successful M&A. Mm, absolutely. But having said that, I... You know, there's, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's just a, it's an amazing, it's just an amazing story. Also playing, anyway, oh my gosh, it's hard for me not to go down that rabbit hole. But no, I agree. we're also, we're also capped on, on time. So I want to get to my next question. A part of my audience are aspiring insight professionals. So they're either in a master's program, you know, like at Michigan State or Georgia or wherever, and, you know, they're getting ready to get a job relatively soon, or they're looking at pivoting in their careers. What do you see as three characteristics of an all-star employee? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I, I think, you know, all businesses are people businesses. And so at the end of the day, our, our businesses are, are all about our teams. You know, one thing I would say, and I think the word is overused, but I would, I would use the word passion. You know, I, th I think some of us have been very fortunate that going to work is a joy for the most part. Not always, but it's a joy. And why is it a joy? Because we love what we do. We're doing what we choose to do. We care about what we're doing. And I think... You know, I'd encourage particularly young people to try and find, it, it's obvious, but try and find work and try and find careers that inspire you. You have a passion for what you're doing. I think that really resonates with, with founder entrepreneurs. You know, when you start a business, as, as you know yourself, you really, really, really care about everything about that business. And so you very much warm to people that also show a care, you know, almost a love for, you, for the business that they're helping you, you know, create and develop. So I think that passion about, about the business and the team and, um, and what you're doing is incredibly important. Uh, you don't want people who are sort of disinterested in half the time in what they're doing, which is, which is pretty obvious. The second trait I'd, I'd raise is, is curiosity, actually, um, a kind of intellectual curiosity. So clearly you want smart people, but I think you want smart people that, that are sort of restless about trying to understand why and, and get to the bottom of not just assume. Um, we live in this very, I guess, I'm a believer in a world of shades of gray and complexity and fragmentation. And I, th I think, you know, trying to get to the to a deep understanding about things is a very powerful trait. And then the, the final, the final thing I'd, I'd add to your all-star list is, is to be a team player, which again is, you know, a lot of people talk about being a team player, but at the end of the day, we go to work. No one wants to go to work and, and have a lousy time. And part of what makes work fun is the people that you work with, that they're in general, you know, everyone has a bad day, but they're supportive. They're fun people. They care about the team. They look after each other. Um, it's not about them. It's not about their ego. It's not about what they achieve. And so I think if you can inculcate that within your culture, um, it's, it's a very powerful thing, as we all know. So my three were passionate, curious, and team player. Last question. What is your personal motto? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question, Jamie, and I, I don't really think I have one. I think one thing that my, my grandfather used to say that I think I've picked up on was, if a job is worth doing, it's worth doing right. I think that's something I certainly think about, e- even now in, in kind of lockdown when I'm outside, you know, cleaning the patio. <laughs> I'm either not going to do the job at all, or I'm going to do it really, really thoroughly. And I think that that's when I reflect back, that's one of the things I believe in. So I either don't do things because I don't want to do them or, or I guess more important in the business context, they don't feel that important or they do feel important, in which case you should really go to town on doing them well. So if a job's worth doing, it's worth doing right. My guest today has been Chris Harberman, CEO of Reality Mine. Thank you, Chris, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Everyone else, if you found value in this episode like I did, I hope you'll take time, screen capture, share it on social media. If you tag us in the post on Twitter or LinkedIn, I will send you a t-shirt. Make sure you tell me your size. Have a great rest of your day. 